Last time we were in the Gospel of John, we looked at this very famous passage where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, those who were against Christ grew in their anger towards Christ. But not only did they grow in their anger towards Christ, they wanted to kill Lazarus. And that's what we see at the end of our passage today, is that the people, the Jewish leaders, wanted to kill Lazarus. Lazarus was the recipient of Jesus' powerful miracle, but as collateral, because he served as evidence to Jesus' divine power, the Jewish leaders wanted all the more to kill him, to basically destroy any proof that would point to Jesus as the Messiah. And that's where we're going to dive in today. Our passage is unique today. We are in John 12, but John 12 verses 1 to 8 contains a narrative, and that's where I want to draw our message from. That's where I want to preach from, but 9 to 11 provides context. So what we're going to do is we're going to go look at the end first as point number one, then that'll be a standalone kind of a background setting, then we'll dive into our message at point number two. Okay, so you'll, if you'll follow along, you'll see where we're headed. Point number one is plot and persecution. So if you have God's word, meet me in John chapter 12. And we're going to jump to the end of our passage. And we're first going to look at verses 9 to 11 where we see plot and persecution. Satan's aim is always to destroy Christ. Satan's aim has always been to destroy life. Satan's aim is always to destroy the ways of God and the plan of God. And anybody who gets in Satan's way is also going to receive damage, be collateral damage. And this is what we see sadly happening to Lazarus. Look, notice in verse verse 9, starting in verse 9, where Lazarus falls into Satan's plot. It says, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests, these are the Jewish leaders, made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now right away, what we want to understand grammatically what's happening in verse 11. This phrase, on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away. When you combine going away and believing and you put that together... As a compound thought, what that's telling you is that this might be genuine belief. In fact, many scholars will say that this is genuine belief. That because of Lazarus' testimony, he didn't even have to say a word. He just has to be alive. Is that everybody in the town of Bethany knew that Lazarus was in the grave. They knew that he was dead. And so simply him being alive again would bring power, a powerful testimony to this man, Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? Well, he's, whoever he is, he's powerful enough that this man who was clearly dead is now alive again. And that, was, that uh, was a blow to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders. That would be a blow to anyone that would want to challenge the Messiahship of Jesus. No man could raise a dead person from the grave, yet Jesus could. And so because Lazarus was, was alive... He served as an ongoing testimony. So if you want to eliminate the evidence of God, what do you do? You kill 
Lazarus. You put him to death, then there's no living testimony. And so that's what they wanted to do. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many of the Jews were actually going away. And that tells you what they're going away from. They're going away from the Jewish power structure. The Jewish leaders are losing influence and power. And people are, are questioning the chief priest. And instead now they're believing in Jesus. And again, scholars say that this assume, presumably, is genuine belief. And that's what's happening. And so that brings us to our understanding that people will persecute you if, if you have Christ. If Jesus does work in your life or if you hold to Christian values and you try to live by the word of God, people will persecute you not because they hate you, but because they hate Christ. And because they hate Christ, they will show hatred towards you. And this is just a reality we have to live in. If God uses you to bring people to Christ, those who are offended by people coming to Christ will hate you. If you lead someone to Christ, their family might hate you because their family is against Christ. So persecution is really the real cost of following Jesus. And that's the surrounding context. Chapter 11, at the end of chapter 11, they want to kill Jesus. And in verses 9 to 11, they want to kill Lazarus because Lazarus served as a testimony to Jesus. That's the background. Now we're going to start our sermon. So 40 minutes starts now. No, I'm just kidding. But now we're going to start our sermon. In verses 1 to 8, I want to simply speak to this thought. That God will work through our generosity and greed, but Satan will. I mean, our generosity and gratitude, but Satan will work through our greed. Again, I never give the big idea in the beginning, so let me try it one more time, okay? God will work through our generosity and gratitude, but Satan will work through our greed. That's what I simply want you to see as the main point from verses 1 to 8. And where we see the relationship between generosity and gratitude is the question what makes a person generous? I've yet to meet a person who is genuinely generous, who is not a grateful person. People who are generous are grateful. This applies in and outside of the church. You meet non-Christians who are seriously generous in life. They're grateful for something. They're grateful for life. They're grateful for opportunities that have been given to them. But for the Christ follower, we are ultimately called to be generous, to be cheerful givers, because we've received a lot through Christ, that we ought to be grateful people, and grateful people become generous people. And so God works through our generosity and gratitude, but Satan, in his plot, will work through people's greed. He will tempt us to be greedy, and by using our greed, he will seek to accomplish his plot. And so that leads us to point number two. So point number one was just setting the context, the plot and persecution. But point number two, I want you to see from verses one to three, sacrificial generosity and gratitude. Sacrificial generosity and gratitude. Notice in verses one to three, it says this, verse one of John 12, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there in Bethany. Martha served. She's in full character. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Lazy guy. Lazarus. No, he's not lazy. I'll, I'll tell you why he's there. Verse 
3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made, for pure, made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. That's gross. The house was filled with fragrance of the perfume. All of those little comments that I made are important because it, you need to read in to the text the context so that you kind of see the weight of her sacrifice, the humiliation that she put herself forth, that she put forth, that she was willing to be humili- humiliated because of her love for Christ. But, but here's what happens, okay? So verse 1 gives us the time and the occasion. We begin with the point of theological significance, the time and the occasion. This is six days before Passover. So six days from now would be Good Friday. So this is Saturday before Good Friday. This is the Saturday before Jesus is crucified. It's no coincidence that they're, celib- that they're here having this meal and six days later that Jesus would go to the cross as the true and better Passover the Lamb. God delivered his people from Egyptian slavery by giving them shelter under the blood of the Passover Lamb. Now here, at this point in John's Gospel, God would six days later deliver his people from spiritual slavery, not Egyptian slavery, but spiritual slavery, if his people take shelter under the blood of Jesus Christ, the true and better Lamb of God. So this is six days before Passover in Bethany. Now, Bethany was the hometown of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And so, noting that this happened in Bethany tells you that this Mary is not the same woman in Luke chapter 7. This is not the same Mary in Luke. This is not the same woman as as we read about in Luke chapter 7, who uh, uses her tears to uh, wipe Jesus' feet. This is completely a different person because it's a different locale, a different location. And the last time Jesus was in Bethany, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, verse 2 says they're having dinner celebrating Jesus' parents' uh, presence. But uh, the people of Bethany, it says they gave a dinner for him there. Now, what is important to know is that this is not in Mary and Martha and Lazarus' home. Mark chapter 14 tells us that this dinner took place at the home of Simon the leper. This dinner took place at the home of Simon the leper. So we don't know too much about the size of that home, but it's probably a sizable home. It's also important to say that he was in Bethany and they gave a dinner for him there. It does not say they gave a dinner for him in Martha Mary and Lazarus's house. This is not a private dinner. And that adds context. Why? Because if, if it's just Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and if Mary does this very humiliating thing of undoing her hair and wiping Jesus's feet with oil and anointing his feet, and if it's only Jesus's disciples and Mary's family that sees this, it's not as humiliating. But for other people in the town, a a town party to witness this really shows to how she views Christ and how she views herself. But before we get there, notice verse 2. It says, Martha served. Now, this is the same Martha who, when Jesus came and visited them, that Martha was doing all the service while Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet. So Martha, she's in character, but she's faithful. 
In here, she's not criticized for her service. She chooses not in her own home. This is not to show. This is not Jesus is in my home and I need to do all this work to save face. No, she's in someone else's home, but still she volunteers to serve because that's in character. Martha is a servant. She's in full character. She serves. She chooses to be one of those voluntarily serving in someone else's home in a town party. Lazarus is not laserous, right? He's not lazy, but he's reclining. That's just how they ate back then. You know, when my daughter, when she lays down and eat, I tell her, you better sit up at the table and eat. But I guess that's just what they did back then was they would recline as they ate on the floor and they would sit. But it makes sense that he's there. This party exists because he was risen from the dead. That's why he is kind of like the newfound celebrity of the town. This town, Bethany, of no significance, really. But here's Lazarus, and it makes sense that he's next to Jesus. Jesus is the man, the divine man, who healed Lazarus. Lazarus is this person, this man from the town, who has risen from the dead. It makes sense that people are focused on Jesus and Lazarus. So it makes sense that he's not really serving, but he's there being served, sitting next to Jesus. And in verse 3, it brings us into the center of the story. Lazarus' other sister, she comes, Mary, and she brings a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. And Mark's gospel tells us that this was an alabaster jar full of perfume. And so you can imagine some lady comes, and if you didn't know her, you would think she's crazy. You know, you're sitting there having dinner. Here she comes, bam, you know, breaks this, this alabaster jar, breaks the neck of the jar, uh, and just starts pouring it on Jesus. Well, what's her point? Well, in, in Matthew's account, it tells us that uh, the, the jar was, of oil was poured upon Jesus' head. And if you can see Jesus reclining, I won't do that here because you can't see me, uh, but if he's reclining, it makes sense that as he's reclining, uh, that, the, that the oil is dripping down his head and probably onto his body. So in a part of Matthew 26, it says that, that she has anointed his body. So the, the oil is coming upon his body, but it's not going to reach his feet. So most likely what's happening is John is focusing in on her humility. Is that she actually goes and she says, okay, the oil is not going to fall to Jesus' feet, so I'm going to go pour this on Jesus' feet. But she does something more. Now, you sisters, y'all use that, uh, I've seen your cart at Costco. You buy that Pantene Pro-V, and you use that conditioner. How many of you would wipe the dirtiest part of a person's body? Back then, they wore sandals. They walked around, and uh, their feet were dirty and dusty. And what she does is she does what a servant would do, which is clean Jesus' feet. But she uses, she undoes her hair. And, and furthermore, what we understand in Jewish culture is that it would be unbecoming and shameful for a woman to undo her hair in public. But she does this because that's all she has. And she uses it to start cleaning and anointing Jesus' feet. And she starts to do that. So this is not only a humiliating act, but she's not ashamed of what people would question her or what people would question. Is she being indecent? She doesn't care what anybody thinks because she's in the presence of God. She understands that. She doesn't care what anybody thinks as she uses her hair to clean Jesus' feet. And most importantly, she is not concerned with the value of her sacrifice. Now, nard 
sounds horrible. You're like, give me a bottle of nard. What is that? But nard is an ointment uh, that, is, that is expensive. It's pure nard. It's not mixed with anything. Typically, nard is imported and taken from India. And so this is, this is an expensive Calvin Klein, right? It's more expensive than, than Chanel. It is, it, it's, it's, a, it's a powerful ointment that you would use this to anoint someone's body or to prepare someone for burial, right? So uh, back then, you know, obviously to prepare people for burial, this nasty, when someone's body is decaying, you would have this nasty smell. So you would have a strong enough um, ointment to uh, prepare their body for burial so that the smell of decay would not, uh, the stench would not be as strong. And so, so it's no doubt that if she broke this and poured it all upon Jesus, that the entire house would be filled with this fragrance. And that's what the text tells us. But this tells you applicationally of what she values. Mary was driven by gratitude. She, wasn't, she didn't care what anybody thought. She was grateful because she, her brother was dead. And Jesus brought her brother back to life. That's a reason to be grateful. But that didn't stop there. She knew who Jesus was. You see, when you and I sit before God, it does not matter. The value of your most expensive possession does not matter. In fact, if you just understood that you're in the presence of God himself, you would actually bring out your most valuable thing and, and your posture would be like, God, you know, I owe you so much more. This thing that I have is the least that I could give you. My life, my time, my treasure is the least that I could give you. But she understood this. And so she worshiped Jesus Christ because she knew who Jesus was. And so, yes, her sacrifice was sacrificial. Yes, it was very generous, sacrificial generosity. But it was also a display of gratitude. And that's what we see, is that she worshiped Jesus Christ. She was not ashamed of what anybody thought of her. And she was not ashamed to do the dirty work. To her, it wasn't dirty work. The least that she could do for her Messiah and Savior and the person who saved her brother's life was to clean Jesus' dirty feet with her hair. But that leads us to, in contrast, point number three, which is selfish greed. So we've seen in point number one the surrounding context of plots and persecution, of, of how the Jewish leaders want to kill Lazarus. We see in point number two this sacrificial generosity and gratitude. But point number three, we see selfish greed. And we see this in verses four to eight. And we see what Satan wants to do through Judas. Remember, remember the idea that I started with. God will work through our generosity. God will work through a grateful heart. But Satan will work through our greed. Satan will work through a greedy heart. He will take advantage of your greed. Even if you're a Christian, he will cause you to stumble for a moment when you're greedy. And we see this starting in verse 4. Judas is not a Christian, but I'm just saying. Verse 8. I mean, uh, verse 4. Verses 4 to 8. It says this. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Verse 6, 
he had said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag he used to help himself, meaning he used to pilfer uh, to what was put into it. Verse 7, Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not ha- always have, have me. So first, here's Judas, and Judas is the one who betrays Jesus. And I love how John always gives us the parenthetical. Right, so Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, and John tells us this is the one who's going to betray, Je- betray Jesus, asks, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, 300 denarii would be equivalent to $10,000 today. Now, to us, that's not as much money, right? But back then, imagine how much 10000 would be worth back then. So most scholars tell us that the best way to calibrate 300 denarii is to compare it to a year's wages. So I don't know how much y'all make, but anywhere from, what, 50,000 to 100,000, 200,000, I look at some of your vehicles and I judge you. No, I'm just kidding. I just look at that and I just kind of scale it. Well, you got like three of those things. So for, for, <laughs> so for certain, you know, you, got, you at least are making $50,000 a year, right, at the minimum, um, and so uh, you consider that's a lot of money. Now, I love how, how John kind of uh, dives into this because Judas is saying that's a year's worth of money. And Judas says he is deceptive. He says, why don't you just give it out to the poor? And I'm like, wow, that kind of rhymes is that she poured out. And he's saying, why pour it out? Give it to the poor. And, and I think it's amazing that he says this in verse 6. As we read, John gives you this insight. He says, Judas is a scoundrel. He's a lowlife. He's a lowlife. I mean, who steals the offering money? Let alone, if we took an offering and said, hey, guys, we're going to take an offering for single mothers. We're going to take an offering for orphans. And somebody starts stealing from that money. What would you think of that person? And what if that person was one of the leaders? And so John's telling you, says, Judas is not just greedy. He is a lowlife. His greed consumes him where he would steal from the money bag of the ministry of Jesus Christ who went around healing people. Verse 6 tells you that. It's not because Judas cared about the poor. He was a thief having charge of the money bag. And so he was entrusted. Can you imagine that? Obviously, Jesus knows. But can you imagine that the person who the Lord entrusts, hey, take care of this money. This money is going to be used for good ministry to help, poor, help the poor. And he's helping himself to what was put into it. And he has the audacity to say, we should give money to the poor, but you're stealing money from the poor. Judas, but that's what Satan does to the, to, with greed. Because when you're greedy, you'll never be satisfied. You'll never be satisfied. You can have the Messiah provide all the food for you. You can have the Messiah there with you. But you'll want every last penny, even what is dedicated to the work of the Lord. So Mary's act was a spontaneous outpouring of love and devotion for Christ. Yet Judas's greed would be used 
by Satan eventually to betray Christ. Now, when you look at verse 7, it, 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 brings, you back into, uh, it brings you back into Mary's heart. When, Judas, when Jesus rebukes Judas and says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now, this needs to be explained. Mary poured out all of it. It, it doesn't say anywhere in the text that she poured out half of it and decided to save it. And Jesus saying, you know, let her keep it. Let her, let her keep it. No, what, what, what Jesus is saying is that leave her alone. She's done a good thing. That rather than selling it for a year's wages, she decided to anoint me beforehand without even knowing it. Mary has no idea what she's doing. She is doing two things. And how we know that is the context. In the very next passage, Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem as his triumphal entry. He's going to ride a donkey into town. And that's the humble king coming in. That's the coronation of Christ. Even though we know he's going to the cross, the cross is actually how he achieves his throne. Is that he goes to the cross, dies, accomplishes victory over sin, death, and Satan. He resurrects and sits on his throne in heaven. But it's through the cross. So he's riding to his throne. And, and, and the path to his throne is through the cross. And so... Mary, in a way, is anointing King Jesus for his kingship. But he's also going to die, and his body is going to go into the grave temporarily, and so she's also beforehand preparing his body for burial. And that's all Jesus is saying, is that, is that leave her alone. She decided to keep it for the day of my burial. She is anointing my body beforehand. So what Jesus is essentially saying is that Judas, leave her alone. She's done a great and beautiful thing. And then in verse 8, when Jesus refers to the poor, you'll always have the poor with me, but you don't always have me. He's not disparaging ministry to the poor. He's simply making the point, something that Mary understood, that the presence of Christ is more important. Because it is the presence of Christ that actually puts our minds and our hearts into proper perspective. We understand this. If you don't love God, you will not love your neighbor. There is a chief command, which is to love God with everything that you are, and then you will love your neighbor as yourself. First, you need to love Christ, then you will love one another. If you don't love God rightly, you will never rightly love your neighbor. And Jesus understood this. So Jesus is not disparaging ministry to the poor. He's saying, you will always have the poor, but you will not love the poor if you don't have your priorities right. You will always have the poor to minister to. There are still the poor today. You will always have the poor long after I'm gone, but you will not always have me in my incarnate form, incarnate form. And essentially, if you don't worship, you're not going to serve well. If you don't worship the presence of Jesus Christ, if you don't seek God, you will not serve man well. There are plenty of people we know that serve the poor, and that's a good thing, but if they aren't serving it for Jesus Christ, then maybe they're serving it to make themselves feel good, to make themselves feel better than other people who don't serve the poor. But when you serve the poor because you love Jesus Christ, that's a completely different story. See, Mary poured out one year's worth of wages for Christ. She was willing to become poor because she realized that apart from Christ, she has nothing. 
I don't know about this. I studied it. Some commentators talk about it. Others don't. But some commentators point out this thing. I'll just put it before you. That this was like her marriage gift. That yeah, you would save it as something really expensive to use only once in your life when someone dies. But other scholars say that when she meets a man and when Mary decides to marry, that she would present this to the family of her husband as a gift because of its immense value. So by breaking it and, quote-unquote, wasting it on Jesus, she's giving away her marriage gift. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's just scholars reading into it to make it sound good. But if that's the case, she's willing to become poor. If someone is willing to become poor because they realize that they're spiritually bankrupt apart from Christ, in order to count it all as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, then don't you think that this person would indeed have a heart for the poor? You see, she understands it. She understands what what it's about to have her priorities straight. So she broke that that vial of perfume, poured it out on Christ, because she would not understand now. She didn't know what she was doing, I don't think, until after the fact. But on the cross, Christ would pour out her blood for her. I don't know at what point Mary realized what she did. Maybe this is what happened. So follow me theologically on this. Mary does the act. And here's the application. Right, let me give you the application first. Sometimes we don't know when God is using our gratitude. Sometimes we don't know that God is using our generosity until we die. Sometimes we don't know until years later. When we do something great for God, but God doesn't give us the credit, later on we realize it. I don't know when Mary dies. But I think this might have been what happened. Mary does this act out of her pure love for Jesus Christ. She does not see what she, did, she does as a waste of money. And Jesus goes to the cross. He dies. He rises again. Later on, and I don't know if Mary's still alive at this point. I, I, I mean, somebody could probably do the math, do the history, one of you nerds, but I don't know. And finally... John writes his gospel. John's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So John knows what Jesus is thinking. So John writes, Mary was anointing Jesus for his kingship. Maybe if Mary's still alive, much older than, receives the letter of John and says, wow, It's written in all of history by Matthew, Mark, and John, what I've done. All the saints in history will talk about Mary and her sacrifice. Maybe if she's dead, she doesn't hear about it until she's in heaven. But isn't that how God works? Sometimes God doesn't tell us I am doing an amazing thing through you. You have no idea. In the moment, you are reacting. You are worshiping Jesus. You are serving people. Martha, one-liner. Martha served. 
she doesn't know the impact of how her name goes down in history. Martha is a good, good person, but Jesus gives her some credit in Scripture. See, sometimes we, some people, serve the poor, and they want the pat on the back. You're such a humble person because you serve the poor. Judas, what a hypocrite. This should be saved for the poor. Let's steal the money that's dedicated for the poor. Then you have Mary humiliating, probably in that moment. I can't believe she's doing this. What she's doing is shameful. Hear the gospel, beloved. I can't believe these Christians are pro-life. I can't believe that they would give offering. How ridiculous that they would give a percentage of their salary each week. I can't believe they're giving their life to the Lord. I can't believe they would raise their kids with these standards. I can't believe, whatever it is, I can't believe that this person would do these things for Christ. How shameful it is that we bear the name of Christ. How shameful it is. You don't get any credit. In fact, like Lazarus, people want to kill you. If God works powerfully in you, the more powerful his work, the greater the target Satan puts on your back. If you're a nobody, Satan doesn't care because you, you do no damage to the kingdom. Sunday Christians are no threat to Satan. You're no threat to Satan if you're just a Sunday Christian because you do no damage out in the world. You're part of the world. But if you are fed here, empowered here, then you go out and you do work for the kingdom of God. You're a threat to Satan. And the greater that the Lord works through you, through little things and big things, you're a threat to Satan. And so we see the entire message come together. Mary's generosity was used by God. Her gratitude was used by God to prepare for the crucifixion of Christ. Did she know it? Probably not. But that's just how God works. But Judas's greed is part of Satan's plot to murder Christ. And everybody knows it too. I'm not disparaging this. So don't be offended. I love you. It's okay. But I don't know one friend or person named Judas. If your name is Judas, again, I love you. No offense. And, and I, I just don't know too many. I've met a guy whose parents have named him Adolf. But I've not met a man named Judas. Why? I think there's a reason. Even the non-Christian who doesn't believe in God, go figure, what is unlikely to name their kid Judas. So if they like that sound, they name him Jude instead. Here's the gospel application. Mary poured out a year's wages, but Christ poured out his life and his blood to save us from a lifetime's wages of sin. Mary poured out a year's wages, and that's a lot. That's a lot to give away but Christ poured out his life to save us from a lifetime's wages of sin. Mary sacrificed her most valuable possession for Christ. But God sacrificed his most valuable possession, his only son for us. And so when we say God will work through generosity, sacrificial generosity, that's exactly what God does. When he sent his son to the cross, God the Father was sacrificially generous. 
by giving his most valuable possession and pouring out his son. Mark 14, 24, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Mary poured out the perfume, poured out the Calvin Klein, poured out the Chanel, but Christ poured out his life, poured out his blood. Christ would pour it out on the cross to save many. So God will work through our generosity. Big idea, once again, God will work through our generosity and our gratitude, but Satan will work through our greed. Beloved, if you don't have Jesus Christ this morning, he is working. He is alive and well, and he wants you to believe in him as your Lord and Savior. There is no shame. There is no sin that he will not forgive except for the one that is rejecting him. Going to the grave and rejecting Christ sadly will land you in eternal judgment, but every other sin he will forgive because you come to him. Jesus Christ went to the cross. He died in our place as our substitute on the cross. He satisfies the wrath of God. If you confess, Lord, I am a sinner and I am in need of your grace, will you forgive me? And if you repent, if you do that right now, Repent means to turn. If you turn your heart, because he's turning your heart towards him. If you turn towards him and say, Jesus, I don't know what to do, but I I want you to change me. I don't know what it is, but I want you to work in my life. He will save you. Beloved, if you want to do that now, I invite you to do that now. In a moment, I'm going to pray. And I'm going to pray for any of you who want to receive Christ now. And if you want to receive Christ now, you pray with me. And after the service, please come talk to one of us saying that I've received Christ. Please talk to one of the ushers saying, I received Christ. Please go out to, if there's people at a table outside, uh, at the counter, go to them and say, I've received Christ. What do I do next? We want you to take your next step. So let me pray for us. And for those of you who want to receive Christ, if you'll follow with me, let's pray. Father, we come before you. And if there's anyone in here this morning, I pray that you would pray this. Father, thank you for dying Thank you, Jesus Christ, for dying for my sins and rising from the grave. Lord, I confess that I am a sinner. I've sinned against you and I need your grace. Lord, will you forgive me? Lord, we repent, we turn, I turn towards you. I pray, Lord, now that you would save me. I pray, Lord, that you would change my life. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for changing my life. I know you've not left me alone. I pray, Lord, now that you would drive me and direct me into your church where I can learn and have support in what it means to live for you. If you prayed that prayer, I do want you to seek someone today. I will not embarrass you now. I'm not going to tell you to walk an aisle, but I do want you to talk to someone about your commitment. For the rest of us, I want to pray this. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would teach us in response not for our salvation, but because of our salvation, in response to you, that we would pour out our lives as a living sacrifice to you. That we would pour out our lives. That we will offer our lives up to you in spirit and truth because you have saved us and you sanctify us. Lord, some of us, we rededicate. Some people need to rededicate their lives to you. Lord, I pray that you would do your powerful work this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.